Welcome to the Kansas Reflector Podcast. I'm Noah Taborda. On today's episode, Reflector staff sit down to recap notable action at the Capitol during the 2021 legislative session. Here is senior reporter Tim Carpenter, who will be moderating the conversation. All right, excellent. Well, it's good to be here with my colleagues, a couple of them in person and one online. But uh, we're going to try to summarize some of the action in the Kansas legislature in 2021 and update you on some of the some of what's happened. It is a long process and, and the legislature has weeks left to kick legislation around and, and try to affect public policy. One of the things the legislature did quickly and forcefully was to adopt a constitutional amendment on abortion. And that required a two thirds majority of the House and Senate. Governor Laura Kelly, who's an abortion rights individual, uh, does not have a voice in this. But the House and Senate decided that it would be best if Kansas voters in August of 2022 went and voted on an amendment that would say Kansas women do not have a constitutional right, a fundamental right to abortion services. And this, uh, this is a direct rebuttal to a 2019 opinion by the Kansas Supreme Court that did point to this fundamental right. I should add that Governor Laura Kelly said that this would this proposal, she said in the past, this proposal would throw Kansas into the dark ages. So this is a hugely important issue for many Republicans and opponents of abortion. And they have, based on the last election, the two-thirds majority they, they really need on most issues uh, to carry the day. So ultimately, this will be decided uh, next, next August by voters. I the legislation opens the door if Roe v. Wade were overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court, it opens the door to passage of a law in Kansas that bans abortion in all instances. Chairman, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Um, yeah, this has been the kind of the, the number one priority for the anti-abortion forces since the Kansas Supreme Court made its decision, which kind of conversely opens the ground so that if the U.S. Supreme Court reverses Roe v. Wade, there's now a right found in the Kansas Constitution. Uh, so that's that's really what's at stake here. And it's interesting that rather than pass this immediately to uh, you know, preserve as the, the supporters of this constitutional amendment say, to, to preserve the uh, the regulations that have been installed for abortion providers in Kansas, they put it off uh, to August of 2022 uh, because that's when they're going to have a, a large Republican turnout for the primary. Yeah, I think there was some strategic value into placement on that primary election ballot. I think the, the people in support of the measure, the amendment felt like it had the best chance of passage at that time that if you put it in the November ballot next year, you have a gubernatorial race and maybe more Democrats will show up for that. Uh, traditionally, Republican turnout at primaries exceeds that of Democrats. Uh, one other element of this is that independents will have an opportunity to vote on it. It would be the only thing that they mm -hmm. would vote on in that primary. So if you're, reg you're registered as an independent, you, your voice will be heard on that issue. I just want to say, I, it's hard for me to even believe that this is where we are right now. But I mean, obviously, it's where we are because the, the United States has been barreling down this path. And K Kansas has been a leader in that anti-abortion movement in many ways for decades. But the fact that, it, that, that the strategy about the timing of this election just speaks to the fact that this is a political issue more than anything. It's not even about abortion. It's about so many other things. 
and Kansas voters have a chance to make 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 a different narrative about abortion in Kansas because abortion in Kansas ends up defining so many other issues. It comes into conversations about tax policy. It comes into conversations about anything you can think of. Just someone throws the word abortion in there and and it just skews everything. We have to wait a year and a half to see what the state really thinks about abortion. All right, let's shift gears. We're going to go to Sherman Smith here and He's going to talk a little bit about K-12. There's a lot of action there. Sherman, uh, what are some of the highlights? Yeah, like so many other topics right now, the, the COVID-19 pandemic has infected the policy debate on this. You know, we saw the Senate uh, has endorsed this plan by the Senate President Ty Masterson to mandate in-person learning options for all public schools uh, forever under any circumstances. Uh, you know, so many people have been upset about uh, the, the remote learning. I think everyone recognizes that this is not ideal for, for children in, in public schools. Uh, but there's also this balance between the safety of uh, everybody that those children interact with from the teachers and school officials to their parents and, and every, everybody involved in, in student activities. Uh, and so this, uh, this bill, we don't know if it, how the, the house will handle it, but it is uh, a mandate to schools to provide that option for an, an in-person learning. And uh, there's some opposition to this because it's, it doesn't provide an exception or, or, or any kind of fore foreseeing of another calamity down the road that, that we haven't envisioned yet. You know, nobody a few years ago would have thought that COVID-19 was on the horizon. Over on the House side, a lot of the education debate has circled around uh, funding issues, and a lot of this got rolled into what the, the House Minority Leader described as a Frankenstein bill, where they packaged, I think, eight different plans together. Uh, a lot of these have to do with funneling cash from public schools into private schools. Uh, there's a tax credit program uh, that would allow scholarships for the most, it traditionally it has allowed scholarships for the most at-risk students at the most struggling schools in Kansas. Right now, about 600 students are able to get scholarships through this program, and it's costing about $2.5 million a year. Uh, what the changes to this would do is open it up to any at-risk student, a, a wider range of at-risk students at every public school, uh, so that basically 200,000 students in Kansas would suddenly become eligible. Uh, there's a $10 million cap on this, so obviously you go from 600 students participating to 200,000 eligible. The, concern with just having four times the money available is that private schools will start to pick and choose who they let in uh, rather than just the most absolute vulnerable kids in the state. Uh, and then in the private schools, different types of accreditation, they don't have to follow the, the state of Kansas recommendations on curriculum. Uh, they don't have to allow LGBTQ kids in, in, in private schools. So there are issues like that surrounding it. Uh, and there's also a plan as part of this that would uh, offset some of the state funding for public schools with what they hope will come in federal legislation, some, some relief aid from COVID-19. And it's not clear whether this messes with the Supreme Court's uh, mandate uh, to, to adequately fund public schools. Sherman, I, I can't help but wonder if there's some politicians in the Capitol that are using the COVID-19 pandemic as leverage to push through long-sought uh, reforms to K-12 public education, and mm -hmm. at the same time, try to damage the governor. I would have to believe that some Democrats are raising these issues. 
Yeah, these are some of these plans are, are things that have come up every year for, you know, two, three, sometimes more years. Some of them are model legislation. Uh, typically, they might get a hearing or they might not get a hearing, but they don't really go very far. This year, uh, they seem to have a lot more traction. The Senate has passed a couple of these provisions that are in the House bill. I think the the assumption is that the governor would veto this package. She hasn't given that indication, but it puts her in a position uh, where she would have to make good on her promise to defend public schools uh, when she, she ran two years ago. Yeah, clearly one of her highest priorities. And we should add that, again, the Republicans have two-thirds majorities in the House and Senate, and we're going to find out what that really means before this session is over when she vetoes bills. I wouldn't be surprised she vetoes a half a dozen or so, and we'll see whether that how much unity the Republicans have over on the third floor. Noah, let's let's turn to another issue. And I think marijuana, a subject that comes up every year, has cropped up in 2021 as well. Yeah, I don't think it's surprising at all that it's back on the, on the docket. Um, and this kind of ties into a lot of what I'll be talking about specifically today in the criminal justice system. Last year, we had two separate bills that were filed for medicinal use. Both died in committee. There was a pretty significant push in June, when lawmakers convened for a special session, it didn't go anywhere. But this year's renewed effort, I think, reflects a statewide interest in the issue. You know, the 2020 Kansas Speaks survey had, I think, 66.9% of respondents strongly supported or somewhat supported. So these conversations this year have taken on a little bit of a different twist with uh, Governor Laura Kelly proposing tying in expansion costs of Medicaid with medical marijuana. Um, there has been some chatter in the state house that that would make it more difficult to pass either of those uh, two bills. But in specific, we have House Bill 2184, which would create the Kansas Medical Marijuana Regulation Act. Kansas is currently one of three states yet to have legalized marijuana in some form, uh, but that could change under this bill. Basically, KDHE would oversee registration, issuance of ID cards, uh, the Board of Healing Arts would oversee licensing physicians. And we would have everything from oils, tinctures, edibles, plant material. But something that is important to note is that smoking or vaping would be prohibited under the act. We had a lot of you know, advocates of criminal justice reform going up against law enforcement on, on both sides. Uh, talks about the economic benefits, quashing the black market uh, were among the proponents, whereas opponents were uh, a little bit concerned about the ability to enforce these laws. I can't help but feel that if I was a law enforcement officer and I've spent 25 years throwing people in jail and charging them with felonies and, and ruining their lives because they were caught with a quarter ounce of marijuana, that I would be opposed to any kind, any kind of legislation that legalized medicinal marijuana or recreational marijuana. CG, I'm just kind of curious, in, as you read about Kansas politics and, and you have your finger on the pulse of what's going on out there, do you think there's, this is an example of how Kansas is slow to change in terms of public policy? I think it's a great example of how Kansas is slow to change on public policy. And, and I argued at the, at the, um, or at, in the fall, actually, you saw South Dakota, for example, legalizing all marijuana, recreational use of marijuana. And I think there's wide support for that. And I think it's, you know, support from all political uh, directions. I think I think if Kansas was was really sort of, you know, brave enough to have the conversation or to have citizen initiatives, you would see legalized recreational marijuana. 
in Kansas if if the people really had a voice on this. But I think certainly medicinal marijuana. Um, it, it, I'm going to be very interested in the the trajectory of this bill this session. I I'm, I'm I think a lot of regular Kansans are going to be very disappointed if this doesn't pass. Yeah, at some point it becomes a political liability for Republicans to have two thirds of Kansans uh, embracing this notion. And there, you know, to me, I've, I've kind of thought about these issues in a, in a way, if a Republican governor stood on, on the steps of the Capitol and proposed medicinal marijuana in a highly regulated way to reduce suffering of elderly Kansas, even at the end of life, you know, I think it would pass. There's no question about it, that, that sometimes these proposals are brought by Democrats and just to, to play with the heads of Democrats, uh, they're voted no. CJ, I wondered if we could shift to another topic and uh, if, you, if you could just talk, uh, there's, there's broad unemployment insurance reform going on in the Capitol, but if you could just hit on a couple of points for us about things that you've noticed about the debate. I think that the, the um, most interesting thing and most um, tr potentially troublesome thing about the broad unemployment bill that's working its way through right now is the proposed limits on how long you can uh, collect unemployment based on the unemployment rate. And this gets a little wonky. I had to actually speak with an economics professor, Donna Ginther, to understand this. But basically, it's tying. So right now, under COVID sort of um, extraordinary measures, you can, you can collect, if you lose your job, you can collect unemployment for 26 weeks right now. <clears throat> so this unemployment bill would tie the number of weeks that you can collect unemployment to the actual unemployment rate in the country. So if it's, if the unemployment rate in the country is 5%, you're, you can only collect unemployment for 16 weeks. If the unemployment rate is between five and 6%, you can get 20 weeks. Or if it's 6%, you can get 26 weeks. And I know that this, this math is hard to follow, but tying the number of weeks you can collect unemployment to the country's unemployment rate is like this false math because the unemployment rate doesn't actually capture the current pain and the, and the, and the state of the full economy right now. And so, you know, I, I, I think what we're going to see in this unemployment bill is, you know, folks are going to be so eager to fix all of the big problems in the state's unemployment system that this, this restriction on how long you can collect unemployment is probably going to get through without a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. Sherman, you have something to add? Yeah, you know, CJ, this is a, a big bill with a lot of components in it, it you know, they would take federal funding to put back into the, the pool to pay out unemployment claims. They would protect businesses that had been hit with fraud uh, claims, but it doesn't seem to get to the, the actual uh, strain that, that so many Kansans have felt, which is struggles with actually getting their unemployment benefits from the labor department. You know, this is something that the Kelly administration has suffered a tremendous embarrassment on since day one. Uh, but it doesn't look like this package actually does anything to solve that, really. And as you point out, it 
it really just adds another layer of potential restrictions for getting those unemployment claims. I think another point that can be made about this, there was a very rare Democrat-inspired amendment that was adopted in the Republican-controlled House, and that would lower the, the penalty for, uh, in Kansas for anybody found to have committed uh, unemployment insurance fraud, either intentionally or accidentally. And, and trust me, the system is so complicated, un unintentional things can happen. Um, so Kansas currently has a five-year ban if you're caught for fraud. It's by far, by far, the most uh, strenuous, brutal penalty that, that exists in the United States. And the, the amendment on, in the bill is to lower the penalty to a two-year ban. And that would uh, still align it with the next worst states in America. I should note that if you're caught under this amendment uh, cheating the state, uh, you would receive a lifetime ban from the system. So, uh, you know, that's a step in the right direction in terms of trying to trying to get back into the universe of other states in terms of penalties uh, for unemployment fraud. I did want to talk about tax policy, and there's there's also a lot there, but I want to talk about one specific element, and that is the attempt to moderate property taxes. And there's a big been a big. I think property taxes are something that consumers generally complain a lot about, more so than sales tax and more so than income tax. And there's been a big push in Republican circles to, to force from the state level, force cities and counties to moderate increases in property taxation. And there's been previous legislative attempts to do this, which I think have generally failed. So they've got a whole new idea here in which even if, if we'll say the county commission is going to increase property taxes. And uh, if that's above kind of a neutral threshold that's been established, then they could easily be forced to have a public hearing and, and vote on it and justify it. And notices will go out to every taxpayer about how their property tax is changing. And I think the idea is to try to help people understand we're increasing the mill levy on property taxes, or we're actually claiming new revenue uh, because of valuations of people's property are escalating. And so there's, there's multiple ways for which property taxes could increase. The point I wanted to make was about an amendment that was rejected on the House floor because it wasn't germane or, or relevant to the current discussion. And that would apply the same principle to state government in terms of property taxes. You know, the legislature is more than happy to tell state and local, gov local governments what to do. This amendment by Representative Jennings from Southwest Kansas would apply that same theory to the state in terms of the 20 mil property tax levied to fund public schools. His idea was to, in the next year, reduce the 20 mil levy to 19, and then the subsequent year to that, lower it to 18. And it, 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 it amounts to big dollars, we'll say roughly $30 million a year. Uh, but actually, the new construction that comes online that people pay property taxes for and the valuation increases would probably cover that over a two-year period. So the Republicans who control the House didn't like that idea, so they argued uh, parliamentary procedure on it and put it on the back burner. But I think it, it, it's an interesting question about applying to the legislature itself the things they try to impose on, on others. Sherman, have you ever seen any of this idea in the past where the, the state legislature complains about what the federal government does to them, but they turn around and do things to local government? 
Yeah, I don't have any good examples off the top of my head, but this this happens all the time. They don't want to be told what to do, but they don't mind telling other people what to do. The, the really fascinating thing about this tax plan to me is this kind of novel formula where if a, a county tax appraiser raises the value on your property, the mill levy automatically declines to offset that across the county so that you don't have what, what sometimes is referred to as these stealth tax increases. Certainly the state would never allow that sort of uh, restriction to be placed on them. That is property increases across the state, they would automatically have the mill levy decline without even able to take a vote on it. All right, so the idea is that you would, you would, the system would balance out property taxes so there would be no automatic kind of hidden increase through valuations, but the county or city or what have you, uh, school board could increase property taxes. They're just probably mm -hmm. gonna have to have a hearing and end up justifying it to angry taxpayers, which is probably just fine. It's, it's yeah. about trans, it's kind of about transparency. I mean, I just think in, in the weeds of the property tax debate, I, I think it's, it's, it's important to step back and ask ourselves at this point as a state, why is property tax, why has that become such a, an important and contentious issue? Why is the sales tax on food become such an important and contentious issue? And, and Sherman and Tim, you've been covering the legislature a lot longer than I have. Step back and give us some context. Like, why is the focus on property tax right now? So there's a lot of action in legislature about income taxes, but mostly that's about helping rich people not pay as much in, into the state coffers. Sales tax has been a, a controversial issue, but there's tons of exemptions that people just cannot handle getting into because it's too hard. As you mentioned, the food sales tax, Kansas has, uh, has a full sales tax on food. It's in some jurisdictions, it can be 10%, 10% if you have state and local sales tax put together. And every time they've tried to modify that, every time the reality of how much money comes into the state uh, raises its head and they just don't have the gumption to follow through. You know, it was, it was elevated briefly during uh, about a decade ago. And then when Governor Brownback was in office, he wanted to lower income taxes and so he actually pushed an increase in the sales tax and applied it to food as well. And so that's where we've been ever since. So it's around, I think, around 6%. So I think I, a, I, lot of, a lot of what I heard, in, in, and I haven't heard all of it, but, but some of those committee hearings on property taxes, you know, you have very, you know, you have small towns, small rural areas who don't have a lot of properties to collect a lot of taxes on in the first place. And, and that's where this, this debate is centering now on, on, on areas of the state that are already in a lot of pain. And we'd rather focus th there than on policies that would tax high income earners or, or big corporations. And I just think that that is that fact of the tax policy conversation in Kansas really gets lost to the detriment of the whole state. I think the pressure to lower taxes, there's a, there's a growing body of people in the legislature that want to lower taxes, period, and make government deal with it. And their priority list is property and income taxes. And uh, so sales tax is kind of down the line because you're making the subjective decision to go buy that boat or go buy that, that uh, bundle of bananas. And uh, we shouldn't restrict income. We shouldn't we shouldn't charge so much income tax because 
those are job creators and all that. So there are all these political arguments made and the, the, little, the individual on a low income paying food sales tax is kind of the forgotten person because who's up here lobbying for, on their behalf? At the same time, the one tax cut that has passed uh, that went through the Senate was a major tax cut for primarily multinational corporations. Yeah, they need more help. You know, there's a lot of people who remember the Brownback years and the, and the Brownback tax experiment, and it did not turn out well for Kansas. And I think there's a lot of worry out there that that, that the legislature is going back down that road. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I talked to Steve Morris, who was uh, Senate president during those years, and he, he put it pretty simply. He said, you know, when you take away from schools, highways, social services, and all the other services the state provides, in order to give tax cuts to major corporations that don't pay any federal income tax, that's not very good public policy. There's a lot of people who remember the pain of those years and I think are astounded that we're considering doing the same thing again. So uh, Noah, let's turn to criminal justice. This has been an issue that the governor has had task forces work on, legislative intern, interim committees have worked on. There's all kinds of moving pieces there about lowering penalties for certain crimes, figuring out ways to release nonviolent offenders from prison. So can you kind of help us understand uh, what's occurring there? Right, so there's plenty of legislation going on looking at drug crimes in specific we have a very large population of nonviolent drug crime or parole supervision violation people that are in our prison system. It cost 84 million alone in 2019 for those two groups. So instead they're offering a lot of diversion options. Uh, we've talked about veterans treatment courts on this podcast previously. So they're getting into specialty courts, which basically offer an opportunity for the defendant to enter into an agreement with the court and undergo what is in many cases, a much more strenuous supervision process than parole, constantly meeting with the judge to address the root of the issue, whether it's a substance issue, whether it's PTSD from service, whether it's homelessness, um, whatever is ailing that person and causing them to reoffend over and over again, uh, it's working to address that. And it has drawn a lot of support. It has a very, very good success rate and it isn't for the faint of heart. You know, this isn't a get out a free card that they're presenting these people. Uh, they really do have to put in the work there. They've also done smaller work that hasn't gotten as much traction on adjusting the drug crime grid to allow people to enter into these supervision processes uh, a little bit easier, as well as considering allowing people who have committed nonviolent drug offenses after they've served about 50% of their sentence time to apply, apply for release. I've been, I've visited inmates at the Topeka Correctional Facility. Uh, that's where the women in Kansas are incarcerated, the felons. And I had a sense that maybe half the people in that place were, were there for drug crimes, meth or what have you. And it always bothered me that they're just sitting on their rear ends in prison when in fact, it would be so much better if they were in drug treatment programs and going to work and, uh, and, and raising their families rather than being incarcerated. Do, do you think that's part, Noah, part of the, the philosophy here, the, of, of, of the kind of the change of the mindset of legislators? I think that's part of it, but I also do think there's still a lot of a focus on the financial side. And I think I hear a lot of frustration among proponents of reform that there's always this emphasis on bed space, 
on reducing the number of people and getting to the point where you can shut down entire wings essentially and um, really start to get significant cost savings. I think once people start moving to that side where they're starting to worry more about the inmate and how you can balance the costs with the necessity to have people languishing in jail for minor crimes, um, I think as we move toward that balance, then we'll see more of these reforms get through. Yeah. Sherman, what are you seeing from, yeah, you, on this front in the Capitol? You know, to Noah's point, several years ago, things were so bad that with overcrowded prisons in Kansas, so we had, you know, riots and guards getting hurt. And uh, at, at one point, we actually had to outsource prisoners to a private facility in Arizona. And this is one of the issues that I, you know, even, uh, you know, Laura Kelly and Charles Koch can agree on that if you get rid of, if you can get people out of the state prisons, you're going to save a lot of money. You know, and you know, Tim talked about the situation at the women's prison in Topeka. I've I've spent some time reporting over there too, and I know that the the estimates are that ninety percent or more of the the women in that prison have suffered some some form of severe trauma in their lives. You know, you you come away after talking to to people about their personal stories and feel like that uh, the the women who are in prison there are there because of something terrible that a man did, either to them or they were with the the guy at the time. And those are kind of the underlying issues that I think some of these reform issues are getting at, that if we can provide better trauma treatments, then people aren't in desperate situations that put them that, that lead to them going to prison. Yeah, I think sometimes people have to realize there are legislators in the Capitol that come there because they don't like government and they want to break the financial back of government. So that forces the policy positions on, on voters that those legislators want to see. That, that, that curtailing of expenditures, the way you get a policy is cut off the money. And you know the problem is when that's done to K-12 schools, that's in the constitution. So we end up with lawsuits and we end up with the Supreme Court wading into the issue and we end up the legislature being forced to increase funding. I want to turn to another subject, Sherman. Sherman has covered uh, foster care in the state house a lot. There's you, you want to talk about heartfelt stories. These are thousands of children in Kansas that are wards of the state, and sometimes their treatment is less than appropriate. Yeah, this is uh, an, an issue that I think has been festering for a long time. The, the foster care system has been this kind of sadness factory. Uh, really, going back, if you talk to a lot of the, the advocates for children, they go back to the passage of the, the HOPE Act during the Brownback years. Uh, which took away a lot of the, the access to the safety net programs in the state, uh, meaning getting food assistance and child support. And what, what you hear over and over again is that we confuse poverty for neglect in the state. So these policies led to a dramatic rise in the number of kids in foster care. Uh, and we see a, a legislation that got a hearing and passed out of uh, Representative Susan Concannon's committee uh, she's a Republican from Beloit, runs the Children and Seniors Committee in the House, and one of the very, very few legislators who has a deep understanding of the, the foster care system and, and the issues surrounding it. Uh, the you know, legislation that's in play would roll, start to roll back some of these restrictions that were put in place under the HOPE Act to make it easier for families to access food and, and the idea and child support. And the idea is that if, if you can do that, you can be more preventative or proactive and, and not have kids going into the foster care system to begin with. Uh, but she's also pushed uh, this idea of having a permanent standing special committee uh, between the House and the Senate that would meet 
throughout the year, uh, even outside of the legislative session, to continue to look into what's happening and, and monitor what's happening in the foster care system. You know, in this past, uh, she gave a speech on the House floor pointing to stories that I'd written about St. Francis Ministries uh, this past fall, where they had leadership that was uh, running amok with the finances. They were uh, charging a lot of money to their the company credit card for personal expenses. There was this, this scheme to grow superfood down in Latin America with the idea that they could then sell it for a profit in the States. Um, that superfood thing's not a joke, right? No, I mean, it, it reads like a joke, uh, but it's, it's not. Uh, he, the Father Bobby uh, Robert Smith was the guy in charge, and he had another scheme where they were going to buy up all these Chicago Cubs tickets. Uh, if they made the playoffs, then they would sell them on the secondary market for a profit. You know, like scalping baseball tickets is the best way to fund foster care. Uh, it, a lot of curious things like that. There's some investigations going into those operations, but you know, Representative Concannon's point was she didn't want to be learning about this by reading a news story. She wanted to be, you know, prodding into what was going on and finding out uh, about it uh, firsthand. Uh, and there's another issue that uh, that she supported that comes from uh, Representative Jared Owsley, Democrat from Miriam, who also is on that committee, the ranking minority uh, member of that committee, and. It's a creation of the Office of the Child Advocate. Uh, this would be a new position that would uh, report directly to the legislature and it would investigate what's going on in the foster care system. There would be annual reports. Uh, if there were uh, allegations of wrongdoing, it would provide another avenue outside of the Department for Children and Families. And the idea is that uh, whether it's this administration or a future administration, you would have another uh, independent voice explaining what's really happening here so that you're not just dependent on an agency that might be compelled for political reasons to not disclose things that are happening in the foster care system. Um, so there's a, there's a, I, I, I know there's a lot there, but we've had a problem in the past in Kansas with foster children. In part, the state has lost track of these these yeah. kids and it's it's an appalling situation and and it's made more appalling by i believe the indifference of previous state administrators to actual fatalities kids that were killed by the people looking after them mm -hmm. and so it's it is a crisis and one element of this is is that contractors uh, the semi kind of privatized system the contractors were letting foster kids sleep in offices cuz they were hard to place mm -hmm. and and in terms of in terms of the missing children, uh, there's been different things tried. They they've hired people to to chase them down all over the state, and uh, I think in the state house there's a brand new idea that emerged on <laughs> what to do with with people that are runners. Yeah, there there are two uh, what what are known as secure care facilities in Kansas: one for boys in Junction City, one for girls in Newton, and you know these kind of act like uh, if you think about adults being committed to a, a some sort of a mental treatment facility. This is that kind of equipment, uh, equivalent for children that there's somebody who has behavioral problems. Uh, they could end up in one of these secure care facilities. Uh, to, you know, to the, I've talked to children who've been here, they feel like it's a prison. The people who operate this would have a very different view of that, but you know, there's some intensive therapy going on and you're just not allowed to leave under really any circumstances because you're considered a flight risk. Uh, so the Senate bill here would require judges who have a child in need of care case that come before them, 
they would be required to send kids who are at risk of running to one of these facilities. Uh, right now they have the option of doing that, but they also have the option of considering what, what the best placement is for a, a particular child. I talked yesterday to Tanya Keyes, uh, the Deputy, Sec Deputy Secretary for the Department of Children and Families about this issue. And, and she stressed that when you have kids who are running away, what's really important is to figure out if they're running to something or running away from something to identify what what the the source is why is this why does this child not feel safe here and how can we make this child feel safe and how can we get them engaged whether it's getting engaged in school or other activities and one of the dangers of the senate bill which i had a brief hearing and then passed on the the floor the other day one of the challenges here is that you know you might have a 17 year old who's trying to wrap up school uh, you know, get their high school diploma or trying to line up a job for after they leave the foster care system. And now they would be taken out of that community and placed into one of these secure care facilities. So obviously, in our attempt to try to cover some of what's been going on in the legislative session, we cannot cover uh, all of the arms of, of the octopus. There's a kaleidoscope of legislation out there. There's election reform, economic development. COVID-19 is a massive issue in the state house. Sports gambling, higher ed, concealed carry, uh, we have all kinds of things. Uh, so, but we also, as we cover the legislature, we observe people making poignant thoughts. There's surprising legislation that emerges. And I can't help but think that sometimes this, this sticks with us as we drive home and wonder what the hell was going on. I, I wrote some about a proposal for a property tax break from a uh, Genesis Health Systems. This is a conglomerate fitness club guy who a handful of years ago tried to get the tax break by just backing up a truck and dumping campaign contributions on legislators. Uh, that failed. That failed when a House member gave a speech about all of the recipients of the money. Came back this year, hired a well-heeled lobbyist, former Congresswoman Jenkins, and, and tried again. And uh, lo and behold, that apparent, that second effort is, has been sunk for now because uh, the owners of Genesis just didn't pay their taxes. And I just have to believe if I'm coming to the Capitol and leading the charge for a special tax break for me, that I'm going to make sure I meet my tax obligations. And it just seems one of the more ridiculous and amateurish uh, efforts in the State House this session. Sherman, you're up. <laughs> well, there's a legislation in the House that uh, it seems like a good idea it would close this loophole for sexual battery of a spouse. Uh, under current Kansas law, the, there is an exemption that uh, a man can uh, sexually batter his wife and it's okay. Uh, so the, the proposal was, let's get rid of that and make it so that sexual battery is sexual battery, no matter what the circumstances are. Uh, but Mark Samsel, the Republican, uh, didn't think that was a good idea. He got up and delivered a speech starting by saying, uh, you know, you should know that I'm not married here, but this seems like a strange idea because, you know, I don't know what exactly you consent to when you enter into a marriage. And, you, you know, I, I can imagine a guy coming home from a, a long, hard day at work and he reaches over to grab his wife and you just committed a felony under this law. And uh, that doesn't seem right to Mark Samsel. Noah, Noah, what do you got on your mind? Well, I've been taking a look a lot at election policy, uh, and one of the topics that the House Election Committee has been taking up is removing the authority of the governor to fill a vacancy in a statewide treasurer vacancy. 
This is kind of a pretty direct response to Governor Kelly selecting uh, former Lieutenant Governor Lynn Rogers to replace now U.S. Representative Jake Letourneau after Letourneau won election in November. And basically, we had one proponent. Uh, it was Mike Cockleman, the chairman of the Kansas GOP. And his basically his argument was, you know, with the will of the voters, they voted in uh, a Republican and they would like to see a Republican fill that vacancy. Ironically, uh, during their hearing, the very next debate, the will of the voters was used in the opposite direction <laughs> as a reason not to pass uh, some legislation. Yeah, it's irony or hypocrisy. I don't know, you can choose. Uh, CJ, do you wanna close out our, um, our little civics lesson we're having here? We've been talking about civics and there's actually uh, a, a very well-meaning, but I think misguided effort that's, that's you know, gaining steam and making its way through. Uh, Representative Steve Hebert uh, very passionately has proposed that high schoolers be able to pass a civics test before they can graduate. And he's basing this on the, on the basically a hundred question version of the United States citizenship test. And uh, uh, that made it through committee. I think the house has approved it this week. And you know, nobody can say that America doesn't need help with civics at this point. Um, you know, even people who were opponents of his bill applauded his intentions, but they said it was redundant. You know, high school students are basically learning their civics. And from where I'm sitting watching all this, it's the adults that don't even really care about civics. They just care about their tribe and their own power at this point. And, and I think that's the real problem with civics in public life right now. That's an excellent point. Maybe we need continuing education for our prospective voters. So I want to thank everybody for taking time today to join us in this kind of um, haphazard summary of what's happened in the State House so far. I think it'd be great if we did this again when the session was over and we'll have a little bit more clearer idea of, of where the state's headed in the future. Mm -hmm.